Hello and welcome to Well Tempered, the podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm Lauren Heinick, founder and specialty chocolate maker at Weekend Chocolate, now located in Barcelona. Deanna Dick is a licensed midwife, mom to three, and founding family member of Dick Taylor Craft Chocolate. Partners in life and business, Deanna is chief confidant and strategic consultant to her husband, Adam, one half of the founding duo of Dick Taylor, alongside with Dustin Taylor. She is also in charge of hiring and employee happiness. For near a decade, Dick Taylor Chocolate has labored to produce exceptional chocolate. Harnessing their handiwork, they turned worse-for-wear vintage machines into custom-outfitted treasures for their ever-growing chocolate factory. Now a household name amongst the fine food scene and with ever-loyal fans, they dock their chocolate ship and crew in Eureka, California, amongst the great redwood forests of the California coast. Thanks for tuning in today. For sensitive ears, I need to let you know beforehand that this episode touches on themes of anatomy, biological events, and Mary J. But it's mostly about chocolate, I swear. start generally with something pretty lighthearted where we ask if you have a chocolate memory from your childhood and what is that? If I'm going to go out of my craft chocolate world and do anything candy bar-ish, it will be a frozen Snickers bar. That's my one true confession. I think that stems from my dad. My dad would always take our Halloween candy, take all the Snicker bars out and then throw them in the freezer. I will confess this, that on occasion you will find a frozen Snicker bar in my freezer time to time. I think that's, it's one of the earliest memories. It was Snickers of all things, not even good chocolate. But I feel like that's totally normal. Who had craft chocolate when they were a kid, born in the 80s or 70s or even 90s? Exactly. And I have done the same, so. Yeah. Is there a secret frozen Snickers in your, in your freezer? There no longer is. But I did, and actually there was also Three Musketeers. Three Musketeers was my favorite, but only frozen. It's the nougat, right? Only frozen. I won't eat it thawed. It's got to be frozen. There's got to be some food chemistry to that. I have Deanna here with me today. She's going to tell us about her role as a midwife in the business of midwifery. But I I asked her to come on to speak about, in just this first few moments of the podcast, what perhaps the female connection is to chocolate. And this is, of course, subjective and, and different for every person, but why maybe there are women who request chocolate when they are moms to be or new moms. So Deanna, what is your take on that? And your clients, what have they requested when they're going through those special moments of their life? It's such a good question. So I'm a licensed midwife in California, and I have been working with primarily women and new families for about the last 15 to 20 years. I think about this a lot. Why do women love chocolate so much? 
yes, it's definitely subjective. This is my opinion, of course, and people will have their own take on this. I think that most women in general just really want to feel cared for. They want to feel like taken care of and loved. They want to feel special. The whole self-care term is becoming a really popular term and with good reason. Like it's just really, really important to take care of ourselves as a lot of us are expected to take care of other people. So I kind of liken it to that thing on the airplane, you know, the oxygen mask thing. They're always like, if you, in case of an emergency, put your own oxygen mask on first before you do your own kids. I think about self-care in that term. We have to take care of ourselves first before we can take care of other people. It means different things to different people. It can't always be like that great yoga class and it can't always be the 90 minute massage. Like there's just time and life and finances don't always allow for the big stuff. Enter chocolate. This is where chocolate comes into play. It's a way that we can really nourish our bodies, meet some like biological needs, but also just like eat something so good, so delicious. It's relatively easy to get. It's relatively inexpensive. It's just a way that we can nourish our bodies and our souls at that three o'clock hour in the afternoon when when everything is hard or (laughs) after dinner and you just need something sweet. It's a way that I take care of myself for sure. And I think that most women think of chocolate as like, this is a treat. This is a wonderful thing that makes me feel really good. And I really enjoy it. For pregnant moms and new moms, it actually is a really, really great answer to a sweet tooth. If that rears its ugly head in a pregnancy and people have a really intense sweet tooth, dark chocolate can be this fantastic answer to that. It's high in all these wonderful nutrients that our body needs anyways, but not overdosing you on sugar and spiking your blood sugar levels. So yeah, I think that a lot of women just call in chocolate. It's a thing that makes us feel good. Now that you say it, if I had a choice of a 90-minute massage a day, maybe I would choose that (laughs) over chocolate, but since I don't. I would like to talk a moment about the health statistics you just mentioned briefly. And one of them is biological, and, and that is that our bodies, especially menstruating women, require iron and magnesium. And those are two common elements that we often crave, if you will. And I think that, mm-hmm. at least for me and my own personal system right now, is, is when I like to stock up, have a little more chocolate than usual. But I always have it. Do you know, additional to those two elements, if there's something else in chocolate that, that makes us feel whole again, so to speak? This is something I think about a lot and talk about a lot with my clients, but also just with people in general that might come into the chocolate shop. It is really a a pretty fantastic and amazing seed, fruit, food. I know that everybody in the chocolate world knows all of this, but it's really amazing when you start to look at the properties that are just biologically beneficial to us. So you mentioned the magnesium and the iron. It's really high in both of those things. Um, It's really high in fiber. It's one of the highest foods and antioxidants. Among other things, you know, there's, there's so many things in chocolate that are beneficial. Those are kind of some of the, the main things. You know, there's so many studies, and I do a lot of medical journal reading just to keep up on my licensure and things like that. But there's so many studies about, like, heart health and the ability that dark chocolate might have on increasing blood flow, circulation. In pregnancy specific, can um, help to minimize the risk of preeclampsia, which is a blood pressure-related disease reducing blood pressure in general, and speaking to the blood sugar issues that people might have too, creates like a more stable insulin system in the body, which is especially important for all humans, but particularly in pregnancy, spiking your blood sugar levels is really not a good thing and can affect the baby in a lot of different ways. 
Um, and then there's a lot of the like psychological factors that come into play as well. So there's the physiological benefits. But I think one of the biggest things is in pregnancy, you're growing a baby in whatever chemicals and whatever hormones you happen to be producing. So if somebody is exposed to a lot of stress for a long amount of time, they're constantly releasing the hormone cortisol. When the cortisol is really high for a long amount of time, babies just kind of stew in all of these chemicals, right? So it's not a beneficial environment for a little tiny human to be growing in, to have this kind of stressful and stress-based environment. One of the biggest things that I'm constantly working on with my clients in their pregnancies is how, you know, how do we reduce or minimize our stress levels so that we're not constantly producing so much cortisol for our babies. And some of that is environmental. Some of that is just like life situations. But some of it is you can kind of combat cortisol with other beneficial things. And dark chocolate is one of those things that pops up on every article on every list. You know, it's got all the good fatty acids. It's got all the antioxidants. But I think it's just chocolate in general, going back to that thing that it just generally makes us feel good, makes us feel like we're being taken care of and we're giving ourselves a nice little treat. It can kind of combat the cortisol levels with oxytoxics. You probably heard the, the term oxytocin is like the love hormone. It's what's released when people are breastfeeding. It's what's released when people have an orgasm. It's, it's the hormone that makes us feel really good. It's kind of what takes the stress levels down. I think that really trying to combat the stress and then combating that with the endorphins and the oxytoxics that are released with, with eating chocolate, it's a great practice. It's a great way we can all like take our stress levels down and then give ourselves a little bit of a treat, if that makes sense. It totally does. And this is a monumental moment because we've just said orgasm on the podcast for the first time. I said that word and then I thought, oh boy. Not sure if it will fall into the clean lyrics or not. I think it will. Because after all, it is also a biological event. Leave it to the midwife. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very thrilled to have this conversation. And it's incredibly special to be able to speak with you on this, but also to acknowledge that moment uh, that we so often overlook, which is mental health. And that can be mm -hmm. another episode and another guest who might specialize in that in that space but it definitely rolls into the self-care and I'm I'm glad that you you mentioned it since I believe so many people who acknowledge that they love chocolate or that they reach for chocolate in a time of grief or stress or uh, whatever might be going wrong in their day is suddenly relieved by that feeling of gratitude for having cacao in their life but this final thing I wanted to spend a couple minutes on this one really surprised me I know that there are some products in the chocolate world that are made with sunflower lecithin. And I had no idea that this was the case and you're gonna share with us a little bit more about it, but it, it actually turns out that that's recommended for our breastfeeding women. How does it go? Sunflower lecithin, it's really, really high in choline. It's generally like a liver function improver, but it also is, it's really high in fatty acids and it helps to improve basically the viscosity of breast milk. It decreases the viscosity, which decreases the risk of getting things clogged up in the tubes. Generally speaking, you just want things to flow swiftly and smoothly. When things get clogged up, they tend to, anywhere in our body generally, but especially with breast milk and stuff, they tend to, if any sort of stagnation where things should be moving can lead to an infection. So a clogged duct in the breast could lead to mastitis, which is a really big issue. It involve, generally involves fever and 
feel really bad, you antibiotics while you're breastfeeding a brand new baby. So yeah, there's a lot of studies on how lecithin in general can help to decrease this issue. It's interesting because that is found in some chocolates. You would have to eat quite a lot of chocolate to actually reach your amounts of daily intake. It's not necessarily the best source of it, but it is found in it. It's beneficial. It's also helpful with, with depression and things like that. And going back to that whole thought of if you're nursing a new baby, you probably need a little bit of self-care. So eating the chocolate might improve just general wellness status. Moral of the story, eat more chocolate. Eat more dark chocolate, good chocolate. I think our audience is probably a little tired of hearing us say breast or <laughs> orgasm. So now let's go on to the other element of what brings you such joy. And I do want to just have you in the first couple moments of our conversation here talk about what your role is at Dick Taylor. My biggest role in Dick Taylor probably is being married to Adam Dick. That's my biggest job. And I, I don't say that in a negative way. I think that I act probably as a, a sounding board for him a lot. Yeah, we've just always been in this together. This is this starting this business has always been a thing we've kind of done together. And I've taken on different roles at different times to help either make that happen or carry on a, an income on the side type thing. So we've been there from the beginning together. And my roles have changed over time. In the last few years, I've definitely become the HR person. We're constantly figuring out what that means and the details involved in that. Anyone who knows is like realizes this is not a very intuitive role. That's how I find it. HR is not very intuitive. So a lot of laws and things that I'm, I'm taking classes right now to get better at all that. I do a lot of the community outreach with the company. So a lot of the educational pieces, any classes that might come in for tours or education to teachers. I love doing that part. I help with a lot of the events that we put on. And then I'm part of a leadership team that we've started that makes a lot of decisions in the direction of where the business goes. I'll do food shows. I've done some origin trips. I'm just kind of the general, like, uh, I'll do that if I can. Within that, you mentioned that a huge part of what you do is your service and the education that you provide to others. And I think you guys have a really unique story in that, well, A, when you look at the American craft chocolate movement in the last 10 years, you're a part of that. So there's a lot of folks that started in that same year, 2010. We all call ourselves the class of 2010. <laughs> it's French broad, dandelion, ritual. I think we're all in the same class. Oh, that's very sweet. That's, that's a nice way to think of it. Yeah, I like that. We are all, I want to say tight-knit group. I just want to say we all have a lot of affection for each other and, and a lot of like sim similar growing pains. And so it's, it's very friendly. I hope, I hope they all feel that same way. I know that we feel that way. <laughs> well, I know, I know they feel that way because we, we could mention here that Jail of French Broad Chocolate actually nominated you to be on the podcast. So she adores you and she said, you have to talk to Deanna because she's amazing. That's why you're here. Well, I 100% feel the same way about her. It's extremely mutual. And you're here because obviously you are part of this incredible story and history in the American craft chocolate movement. I want to have the opportunity to share with the audience who's listening from around the world, which is also so cool. And I want to say to the people listening that I could have never imagined that this would be reaching all of you. And I'm very grateful that we have these means of communication to share 
what we have learned and where we're going and, and how together we can rise with the tide. You have such an interesting perspective and outlook on the last near decade of what's been happening from this small little town in the northern part of California. Let's dive a bit more into some of those moments of either how the company really came to be or if you had some initial thoughts to share with those that might be in similar positions of starting and knowing that 10 years down the road, they could be where you are. The quick and the dirty of Dick Taylor, how we got our start. It's, it is an interesting story, but what I'm finding is that almost every chocolate maker that we know has such an interesting story. seems like very few of us got into this industry because we were already working with chocolate. Maybe some people were already working with food, but it, it is such an interesting thing. I'm finding more and more. I'm so intrigued by everybody's story because it's so unique and it's so different. This industry is full of really, really creative and neat people and, and just people who bring their own twist to their company. It's, it's really special. Yeah. So Adam and Dustin were carpenters forever. I want to say like 15 years together working, building houses, building furniture, doing finish work. They were cabinet builders, kind of like fine woodworking and really, really detailed craft oriented, including boats. They got sent a video from a friend of ours who knew we appreciated sailboats and who knew we appreciated good videography. And he sent us this video. Most people remember this from the Mass Brothers. And it was how they had sailed their beans from somewhere to New York. And it was this really cool story. And anyway, it's just a great video, but it literally started. I almost feel like I could see, you know, those wheels that all connect together. Like you spin one and all the other wheels spin. I feel like I could see that happening in Adam's brain. He was just like, all of a sudden it clicked with him. Like, this is how chocolate is made. I had never thought about it. And so I started thinking about it more and more. He started doing his own research. It was just, it was coming out of the blue. It was out of absolutely nowhere. He had had no, no food history, no working with anything food related. They were true carpenters, wore their belts and swung hammers every day. And all of a sudden he starts thinking about chocolate. And so before I know it, the UPS guy is dragging up a 150 pound bag of beans up our steps. I thought they were kidding. I don't know. You know, I did not see it going this way. So he started just fooling around with it at home, like in our, in our tiny oven, in our laundry room. He started roasting beans, cracking them open himself, and then grinding them on a t- tiny little tabletop grinder. And was just intrigued by the whole process, like had no idea that this magical seed could become something delicious. We all had our experience of chocolate, but didn't realize that like with just two ingredients, you can make it taste pretty good. And arguably, it wasn't very good back then. It was, it was pretty rustic. You know, I think that in time, the more that he worked with it, he just started thinking about like cacao to him was just like wood. And I think from this carpenter's perspective, through and through, they were just like, yes, you start with this raw ingredient and you manipulate it enough in different ways. And then it can produce this gorgeous finished product. And for them, I think that that is pretty much how they have treated the business as a whole. It's always made sense to them as would make sense to them. Like if, if you treat it a certain way, if you do this thing to it, if you do that thing to it, and then you do this, it's this gorgeous, beautiful piece of something that somebody can enjoy. Really in the beginning, it was extremely small minded. It was never like, oh, we're going to become this big chocolate factory. We're going to make a lot of chocolate. It was like, 
maybe we'll sell it at a craft fair at Christmas time, or maybe we'll sell it at the farmer's market. That was literally our business plan going into this whole thing. How many bars do we have to sell just to pay for our rent? So they started off in a lumber yard, which made a lot of sense, them being carpenters. There was a open certified kitchen inside the lumber yard where they bought most of their, their high-end lumber. And I think he started them at like $300 a month. It was beautiful. It was the only way we really could have started this teeny tiny side business while being full-time other somebody's. I think it was just on the weekends initially in this little tiny lumber yard. And I think they had about 400 square feet to begin with, to work with. So they had a couple machines, a couple little things, and then we're just kind of making two ingredient cacao and sugar chocolate right from the get-go and just thinking who is going to buy 50 bars this week. And then the next week, who's going to buy 50 more? <laughs> we just, we couldn't figure out who was going to buy all this chocolate. It seemed, it seemed unfathomable at the time. But people were buying it. You had mentioned to me that you continued to ask yourself that question, who is going to buy this chocolate? And yet it would sell out and you would start the cycle and process again. So I think it might be important to know a little bit about the geography of where you are, because it could either play for or against you. That's a really good question. It's an important piece of who we are. We're in Eureka. A lot of people assume that we're just north of San Francisco, but it's actually about a five to five and a half hour drive straight up. We're quite close to the Oregon border and we're in the Redwoods and we're right on the coast. So it's gorgeous here and a really unique place to live, but we're really, really isolated. We don't have like a thriving, booming, wonderful city like San Francisco or New York, or we don't, we would never have that kind of foot traffic. So from the get-go, we created a wholesale business and didn't even have a storefront, actually. <laughs> I don't think you could actually walk up and buy our chocolate bars from us. The lumber yards sold our chocolate, but that was like they were an account. <laughs> so it was really funny how it was set up originally. Yeah, and so we got into a couple local stores here that were supportive. And then I think it was just kind of organically started to grow. I think there was a, a food blogger that discovered one of our chocolate bars wrote up on it. And then from there, it got a lot of attention and there people started ordering online on our very small, tiny little online store. It always surprised us. Like how, how did people hear about us? Like we're just tucked up here in the redwoods and who is finding our chocolate? One of our very earliest accounts was the meadow up in Portland and in New York. And that was a really amazing account for us. That was made us feel really great. And thank you, you know, thank you for recognizing this. And so that brought in a lot of customers and other people seeing it there. And then, I don't know, it just kind of organically kept growing. And what about taste and texture? Because I feel like you have one of the most consistently consistent products in that it's always beautiful. It's always, I want to say the same, but I mean that as a compliment in that it's just again and again, I can trust on it being as such. And that's something that's so important to retailers these days is that people are selling again and again what the caliber should be. But you had mentioned that in the initial days you were thinking, oh, well, this is kind of rustic, kind of different. At what mm -hmm. point did you recognize that, okay, we're making great chocolate that is of this world-class standard that we can sell? Or is that also an evolving process in that, 10 years down the line, there's so many other companies on the market now that you get to kind of calibrate against and, and also just keep your palate in a new frame of mind, so to speak. Mm. 
I think it's definitely been an evolving process. So in the beginning, we, like almost everybody else, we started out with a cocoa town and we were just grinding the nibs and then grinding the, the sugar in. There's very, very little manipulation that you could do with that one machine. And so I think that we were just finding, we, we want to refine this a little bit more. We want a better mouthfeel. We want a better, just a better lasting taste. We want less acidic flavors in the like aftertaste of it all. But realizing like we couldn't really accomplish that with just the Cocoa Town. So I think we quickly realized that we were limited with just the one machine style for what we wanted. This is where Adam and Dustin's carpentry and mechanical mindset comes really, really handy is that they would kind of think about the end process. Like we want it to be more refined. We want it to be have a smaller particle size so that it just tastes better on the mouth. So it's just a more smooth experience, but still keeping it to ingredients. They would figure out what needed to happen. And then they would find machines that would accomplish that, even though they were probably not meant for chocolate making. Not actually very few of our machines in our factory are meant for chocolate making, <laughs> but they've kind of manipulated them all and kind of rebuilt them to suit whatever need that they needed to produce. So that's kind of always been their spin on it all. And how can we do this on a shoestring? That's always been an interesting thing to them. I think that as woodworkers, they were constantly rebuilding and using old vintage woodworking machines. And that introduced this idea to them that like, wow, machinery built in the early 1900s or like you know, before 1950s was, is really good. It's really well-built machinery, but it often just needs to be fixed or tweaked a little bit. So pretty much, I would say the majority of all the machines in our building are old kind of vintage machines that they have bought because they were dead and ugly (laughs) and they shipped them across the country and they fixed them up. They added the new motors or they rewired everything or they, you know, they made it all food grade, they repowder coated it, and now they're these gorgeous, fine working machines. But like Adam said recently, he said, you know, all it took was just a ton of time and energy, but thankfully we could do that for free. <laughs> Adam and Dustin have always been the on-site mechanics and the ones who are rebuilding and fixing these machines. And it saved us a ton of money because we don't have to hire in mechanics. Has that facet of the business definitely set you up for where you are today in terms of had you been a standard business, I'll use my Excel as this example, like I'm looking at what might be my next scale up and it is absolutely frightening to think that I'm going to have to invest, uh, let's call it roughly $20,000 in a go just to be able to produce a little bit more. Like we're not even talking a lot more. <laughs> You're now in a place of profitability. Do you think that you could have gotten where you are today without that piece, without that upper hand in terms of the machinery? That's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's $20,000 easily for this machine or forty dollars to $50,000 for that machine. And we just didn't have the cash flow for that. You know, we've always tried to do this kind of on a shoestring. Dick Taylor has never had investors. So we entered this with essentially no money and we just had to kind of make the business turn its own profit from itself. Neither of us put a lot of, or any really personal money in, none of us refinanced our houses. You know, that's, and I'm not saying that investors are a bad thing. And I'm not also saying that that wouldn't be a good option for us one day, but so far we've been able to do it without investors. And so we've had to figure out how can we do this? How can we make these machines 
produce the amount of chocolate that we can so that we can be profitable enough, profitable enough to carry the business on. <laughs> and, and I would say, you know, it wasn't profitable straight away for the first two and a half to three years. Adam and Dustin were still working pretty much full-time carpentry. There was a lot of like nights and weekends where if I just wanted to go see my husband, I would strap a baby on my back. I bring them a pizza and we would wrap bars late into the night. And that was the one time I could see him from like 8 till 11 p.m. Because <laughs> they did a lot of years like that. A lot of work all day as a carpenter, work all night and all weekend. And then I think they eventually went to Mondays as, as chocolate makers. And then there was this moment, like you're saying, um, to scale up. I think they realized about three years into it, maybe, that in order to make enough chocolate to where it's actually profitable, to where the business is kind of sustaining itself, they really had to jump in. It was terrifying. It was really like a big moment. We had a big discussion about it. And it was this moment of like, if we don't jump in, then we'll always be kind of like hobby chocolate makers. It's not a bad thing. It was just the crossroads that we were at. Or if we jump in, we could possibly make this an actual like business. And so we thought about it a lot. And Adam and I were three kids into it. I had just had my third daughter. She was about four months old. So I decided to go back to work full-time as a midwife and was attending births full-time. He was what we like to refer to as the volunteer chocolate maker <laughs> of the family. It took a lot in terms of like, if you're, if we're speaking to a crowd who's thinking about coming into this, it took a long time for it to become profitable enough to where we could start hiring people, start making enough chocolate to maybe buy bigger machines or buy more cocoa so that you can make more chocolate, buy more, you know, more sugar. There's always that cash flow issue of, are you making enough to be able to buy what you need so you can make more, so you could buy what you need more of? Do you know what I mean? It never, that part never ends. But yeah, it, there, it just really came a point where we just had to jump all in and totally trust this and trust that it was going to it was going to work out or it wasn't or, but we were going to, we were going to give it a try at least. Let's talk a little bit more about having employees and the opportunity to hire within mm -hmm. this community that has such a varied and unique history in terms of the region. So first I would love for you to speak a bit about, again, you had mentioned where Eureka is, but there's something quite special about where you are geographically that has lent itself to a, a certain type of, of industry and a certain type of worker, so to speak. And now you've been able to provide something new and alternative for the community. So let's, let's start there with who is working for you and what that climate is like. Yeah. Well, we are really, really lucky. We've got an incredible team right now of about 18 people. Um, and since this is a show about women in chocolate, I thought it was interesting that we have 12 women on our team and six men. Fun fact. We have a unique economy up here. So being in the redwoods and being on the coast, we were primarily a hundred, couple hundred years ago, we were like a timber industry, then a fish industry. Both of those things have kind of burnt out. And I'm sure anyone who uh, is familiar with Humboldt County probably connects Humboldt County to the incredible marijuana scene here. We are pretty much known. It's like the biggest cash crop or has at least been, historically speaking, for the last I don't know, 20 or 30 years, the biggest cash crop of this entire county comes from marijuana. So that's all changing with the legalization of it. And it's, it is looking a little bit different and it's actually creating an environment where it actually feels kind of unstable. So it starts to feel like the people who were in that industry before aren't making as much money as they were. And so it's 
yeah, I think that there's been a lot of shifting and changing as far as the needs for jobs and things like that. It does feel really good to us. I mean, granted, we're still a really, really small business. We only have 18 people, but we have 18 people. And there's a lot of families within our Dick Taylor family that we can come alongside and support and um, help their families grow. That does feel really, really good. It feels good to provide a good work environment. And I think that's one of our main goals is that people would love what they're doing. They would love to come to work and that they would be able to believe in what they're creating. Yes, they come here and they work for us and with us, but it's like, you know, their life intersects with our life. And now it's a very friendly atmosphere. It's a very family-like atmosphere. We have um, lots of employee lunches and and staff meetings. You know, I think we've always from the get-go wanted to create um, an extension of our own family that has been successful. And certainly you weed out what doesn't belong for sure. And that's, that's the hard and nasty part of HR, but you know, that everybody has to deal with that for sure. The other piece of this that's important to me, and I think, isn't it awesome that like we can just be ourselves and that there's also, there's also proof to like, okay, we're human. And these humans have done something very cool. And this is just a moment to share those accomplishments to celebrate and recognize like how hard you all have worked in the last 10 years and where you are and and how many people quite honestly look up to you and how you've gotten there because Dick Taylor is a reference in the world of craft chocolate. And I mean, world literally the attention to detail is noticeable from, from a mile away or a kilometer away. If you're in that part of the world, it does feel good. We labor so intensely over every little detail and you sometimes just think, is this like worth it? You know, is this little detail worth it? And then, so when it gets recognized or whatever, when it makes somebody's day and makes somebody feel good, then you're like, okay, it's worth it. Does that feedback get to you quite often? Like how do you recognize that that might be taking place in the marketplace or with your customers or like, what are the means of of that acknowledgement? You know, so now we do have a storefront right in front of our uh, factory. It's connected to it. So we have a little like chocolate boutique where we have all of our chocolates for sample. And we carry a number of other people's chocolates just because we, we can't make everything and we really respect um, all these other chocolate makers. So we have a little chocolate library as well, but yeah, it's really nice to, have someone walk in our doors and they are just like, if they're encountering this for the first time or who knows what brought them in there, the packaging and, Oh, this chocolate. And are you kidding? This is dark chocolate. I don't even like dark chocolate. And oh, I've never tasted, you know, it's really, really nice to get that feedback firsthand. That's always, that always feels really good. I think for anybody in whatever industry you're in, I think too, it shows in our repeat customers or in our wholesale account, people who continually buy a lot of chocolate from us and sell it. I guess that's an unspoken feedback about the product, but that people are buying it. You know, I guess we going back to that question, who's going to buy this? You know, it's like we're always surprised and amazed and humbled by the amount of chocolate that we make and that is purchased each month. You know, it's just like, wow, there are people out there that are buying chocolate regularly, a lot of it. And it's not without a lot of hard work. We've got a really great sales team now and um, great marketing. And we've had to work really hard on making that super intentional to get that all working well. The sales, the marketing, these used to be side thoughts. They were afterthoughts after the chocolate. And now it's becoming like it's just as important to sell the chocolate as it is to make it. 
It's an interesting statement because I feel like your packaging has always stood out as being remarkable and very handcrafted. Because I have heard that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that you have this vintage letterpress that has done this amazing work. But now to hear you say that marketing is becoming more in the forefront, I'm curious to hear how you felt like you were spreading the word before and what has changed now in this era of Dick Taylor that you are doing things differently. It wasn't as focused of an effort, I suppose. Um, We have had a sales manager for a number of years, and she's amazing. It's Dustin's sister-in-law. She has come from a sales background, so she has been a really great driving force into, like, we got to think about this at this point right now in this year, how and when to release products and how to go about it strategically. Now we actually have one of our employees, we moved him out of retail and put him in marketing, and he's just been really killing it. Great, great photographer. All the photography we use almost exclusively is done in-house, and um, that just speaks to his skills. I think we're just trying to be a little bit more strategic about how and when we we announce things, how we get people in our doors. We're starting to realize originally when we became a business, we thought, well, this is a semi-backwards community up here. It's small in comparison. How could we ever have like a retail business? And I think that was a detail that we kind of overlooked in the beginning. But what we're finding actually, our retail is doing really, really well here in our little community, we have just such a supportive community, be it small, but people are very, very supportive of entrepreneurs here. Um, They're very supportive of like these little homegrown businesses that are actually like becoming participants in their industry, that they're recognizing that we are one, a craft chocolate business that's like kind of recognized throughout our industry. And, And our town is coming around us. Our city is coming around us. They want to help us. They recognize us as a, as a growing small business. And you do tours now. Is that a newer event or? We have done tours for about the last five years since we've been in the building that we're currently in. And so that's another focus that we would like to tap into more as we think about this coming year is how do we attract more people into our actual space, focusing more on retail, focusing more on direct to customer sales. We will be moving into a new space in the next year, hoping to make that space more accommodating to like a sit down treat place, more of a destination versus just maybe a tiny shop. We will stay tuned for that. That's exciting news. It's going to be a challenge, but it's going to be a great opportunity. And looking back, what advice would you give now to your 10 year ago self? Ah, to my 10 year ago self. I think I would give myself the advice of trust the process. So I'm pretty good about that when it comes to biological things. I'm pretty good about that with my own body growing a baby and getting a baby out. I'm pretty good about that with trusting it for my clients. I think that it was harder for me to trust the process. This was such a new endeavor. Who knew if it was going to even work out at all? The financial piece was really stressful to me. I think if I had trusted the process a little bit more, I could have eased up there and uh, had a lot less cortisol floating around my body. (laughs) But you know, you never know starting a new business. It's like, it's kind of a exciting slash terrifying thing. I'm guessing that most people have felt this that are in this industry. Most people or in any industry of starting your own business, there's definitely like a line where you have to jump fully in, not totally knowing whether it's going to work out. But if you're not fully in, 
then it's really hard to move it forward and to make it anything if you're walking the line one foot on each side. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. It is very common sense in terms of you got to go for it. But we don't talk a lot about the guts that it takes to be in this industry. There's about 10 big t- to us craft chocolate makers at the time. And in 2010, when we came on the scene, there was the handful of the ones that we totally looked up to. And then there wasn't anything else. Like most everybody that we knew, our friends and our family were like two ingredient chocolate. What is this? This doesn't even taste like chocolate. So we were kind of, not only were we jumping into a new business, we were jumping into an industry that hadn't quite come around yet. You know, a lot of people weren't totally caring yet, maybe where their food came from, weren't totally caring about fair trade, weren't totally caring about organics, maybe just starting to, but it was really an unproven industry in a way. If I could say that without offending anybody, it was still like very much like what craft coffee was doing 20 years ago. It it hadn't really totally made its presence. And we weren't even sure that people even liked this kind of chocolate to buy it enough. So it it was jumping into a new business, but it was also like trying a new field. Going to Mars. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and we're all the better for you having done it. I mean, to have this conversation now <laughs> is uh-huh. is uh, quite fortunate because now look at the numbers and in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years, like it's going to be pretty incredible to see where this goes. That's so true. And it, it's not a weird thing anymore, two ingredient or just dark chocolate or small batch American craft chocolate. It's not this weird concept anymore. It's becoming more normal. I hope so. I think we have a lot of work still to do. And when we speak internationally, it gets a little more diluted, perhaps. But mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe this is also just my own insecurities about uh-huh. not having, quote unquote, in my terminology, made it and seeing someone like yourself who's clearly got clients and customers and accounts and da 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 da. Everyone comes from their own place of that. Totally. It's so imperative that I think role models are there and that they continue to be there in various forms and that the baton is passed, so to speak, so that we can continue to to support one another. I was actually speaking to someone the other day about this and that this thing that kind of drives me crazy is date dropping in the terms of someone who comes across something later than you is therefore subpar or inferior to you. Well, you know, maybe I was born 10 years later and then therefore (laughs) I've entered 10 years later than you. We can't begin to judge each other on entry dates, but more so on just like keeping that humility between we all started from nothing. Absolutely. When I hear your story, I'm thinking it's the same. It's the same. You know, like we started from nothing. Literally, we had no money. We had no place. We had no idea. Nothing. And we would have never, ever, ever guessed that 10 years later we would be doing what we're doing and that this probably would be our only job. And so it's just morphed and changed. And I think we've been excited to hop on the train, but it's not, it's not come without blood, sweat and tears. And so I kind of feel like anybody who's got the drive. And as Adam says, anyone who's crazy enough, (laughs) he loves to say that, you know, if they're crazy enough, do it, be a chocolate maker. But it does seem like you got to make a lot of chocolate to make it sustain itself. That's what we've come to. Sage advice from the pros. There you go. Let's talk about the chocolate because we've had a ball thus far. What what gets you excited about what you're making? What are some of the new origins? I saw Columbia recently on Instagram. 
you know, I think one thing that's really exciting to me is it's, it all boils down to connections. And I already mentioned like the connection that, that chocolate has become for us within our own employee family. That's really great. But like, it's, it's just a connection grounds to the rest of the world really through cacao, I think. And I know certainly that is what you're doing. And I, I so appreciate the work that you're doing and how you've connected so many chocolate makers and so many people in the chocolate industry. Thank you. It's been fascinating listening to different podcasts. And, but also when we all get together, you know, we're all pretty connected. We, I think that generally speaking, the chocolate makers that we know, we have similar struggles. We have similar business issues. We have similar mindsets and mentalities and ethics. And so we're all connected on that way. So that makes me really excited. It makes me excited to feel like we're a part of this bigger thing that is American craft chocolate. We're constantly working really, really hard to connect people back to what are they actually eating. Every tour we give, every field trip, every class I ever speak to, I'm always speaking to the supply chain, always speaking to, we would be nothing without the farmers that we work with, without the people who live close to the equator, who can grow cacao. Those people are our heroes because they have something and they can do something that we cannot. And so it's this beautiful partnership and another form of connection. I love the model that we've adapted, that we just, we work with people that we, we generally know. We either know the farmers or we know the people who are managing the farms or really great trustworthy bean suppliers. It's always been a pretty transparent and trustworthy system. Why don't we talk about one of the origins that's particularly pulled your heartstrings, the Solomon Islands, because you had an opportunity to go there. Yeah, I did. I feel really lucky. Adam and I got invited to go there to be, well, chocolate judges for a national chocolate contest that they were hosting. So there's about a thousand islands within the island chain, and they were holding a nationwide cocoa contest. So you grow it, ferment it, and dry it, and then you submit it dried and raw like that. And so we were judging dried cacao and then went through an entire process of weeding out the goods, the bads, the uglies, and um, ultimately coming up with a winner. We were able to go two years in a row for this. I think the reason it's so close to my heart, it's just that we were there for about three weeks the first time we went. We were working with Dave and Nat from Madre Chocolate at the time, and they were hosting like a fermentation boot camp for the farmers there who wanted to get a little bit more insight into how to change their chocolate from a cosmetic product, because in the Solomon Islands, traditionally, they'll ship their cocoa beans over to Asia to be pressed out for cocoa butter in cosmetics. So it wasn't a food product for them. The idea being that if you could dry these in a more delicate way, it could become a more delicious item and it would become a food item. You would make, I don't know what the number is, 500% more on each pound of cocoa than you are right now. And a huge incentive for farmers to be making more on the product that they're already growing. That was really, really neat. It was so neat to go straight to origin. It was so neat to literally live on the island with this one family who was a big time farmer. He was kind of hosting this whole workshop. I mean, the Solomon Islands, it's like one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been in my life too. Just gorgeous. But working with the farmers, working with the fermentation process, and particularly encouraging them to not smoke dry their beans, which would create this really smoky taste in the chocolate, encouraging them to sun dry their beans. And that involved a bit of setup and involved a bit of different equipment that they might not own. So 
that's always tricky when you're in a third world country and people have really minimal means. You know, they don't have a lot of money to spend on wood to make a platform. But you did have a couple of carpenters with you, <laughs> like your husband. Yeah, we did. We built some fermentation boxes. We were working mostly with fermentation, really trying to get down to the brass tacks of like, if you check the acidity level at this point and the sugar level at this point, and you take it out at this point when it looks and it tastes like this, really, really detailed instructions. And if the farmers were wanting to do that and wanting to create more of a food product versus a cosmetic product, they understood that they would make a lot more money at that. I think also there was just this huge disconnect that they had actually a food product. So a lot of them, I noticed a lot of the questions were like, how do we know when it tastes good? How do we know what you want? As a cocoa buyer, a potential cocoa buyer in the future, how will we know what you want? We just kept coming back to, if it tastes delicious to you, it will taste delicious to us. You know, like just keep trying it and you'll know when it tastes really bad and then write down your notes. And when it tastes good to you, chances are that is what we're looking for too. So trying to increase this sense of confidence as well, that like they could connect to their product that they grow. They know these plants and they know these seeds so well, but they weren't treating them like food. Right, right. Because with other industry, they had also removed that confidence by purchasing other angles of other outlets for the raw ingredient. Totally. So what we notice is there's very few items that the people in the Salmon Islands actually buy. One of them is milk powder because they don't really have any cattle. One of them is sugar. So I don't think there's a huge cane sugar growth there. And the other one is Milo. Milo. They're buying Milo for their kids. Like they've been all told that their children won't grow up healthy. They won't have as many nutrients that they need. Their brains won't function well if they don't have Milo. And it's so expensive. And when you have such a little income to work with, to be spending all that money on a powdered product. A lot of the times that the men went off and worked with the other male farmers, I would stay back and hang out with the ladies. And we did all kinds of fun things. We would roast cocoa beans over fire. I taught them how to make like a chocolate rice thing that they could eventually sell in the marketplace. And then just taught them, showed them so simply how to make hot chocolate, just a drinking chocolate. You know, we roasted the cacao beans pounded them in their cassava pounder. They already have all these like beautiful pounding devices that they've made, boiled it and strained it out, and then add a little bit of milk powder and sugar. And then they have their own version of Milo, way healthier version. And they were pumped. They were so excited about this because it's essentially free except for the sugar and the milk powder. They can make it all the time. They could feed this to their kids. Actually, we spent a day taking it. We made a big batch. We took it to market. And they walked away with like a couple hundred bucks. It was amazing. They had created this product that everybody thinks they need to buy at the store, but they have so much access to it. They were asking if this is what I feed my children. I said, I, I can't grow cacao. Like you can't, I can't actually give my kids this fresh of an ingredient. But it was so great. One of the best things in my adult life, actually. But we went back the following year and these friends that we had stayed with and spent a lot of time with, they traveled down to meet us away from their home and they brought this bag up to me and she said, Deanna, do you know what this is? No, I, I didn't know what it was. This woman that we'd stayed with, she had been processing her own cacao, roasting it, peeling it, pounding it, and then putting sugar in it, 
you know, it was kind of powdered version at that point. And she would sell the bags of the cacao and sugar to people at market so they could go home and make their own version of Milo with just hot water and some milk powder if they wanted it. So she had actually made an entire business. A year later, she had made an entire business of this and was selling it at market regularly and always consistently selling out. It's incredible. She was totally bringing income into her family. She was pumped and it was just like such a beautiful thing to see somebody connect with the stuff that's naturally just around them Mm -hmm. and replacing it with something that they had to buy before. Very rewarding and very clear of just the little nudge that some of us need to take that next step. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to wrap up here before we move on to the final two questions. If there's something else that you'd like to speak from your heart or that you'd like to discuss about the business or what you would like for posterity to live on? If I would say something, I would probably encourage people. I know you've mentioned it a couple of times that you just feel so far away from where you imagine we're at, but it was not that many years ago that we were in your same shoes. It does take a lot of hard work, but it's just sticking with it too. I don't know. There's definitely always going to be blood, sweat, and tears years. And maybe that's like an ongoing cycle. Maybe you you get through that, you rest for a minute, repeat. Go through that, rest, <laughs> repeat. That's what it tends to be. But I just, I don't know, just maybe if there's an encouragement to like, it's okay to try something new. It's okay to try to go for it. And um, you might be surprised at who keeps buying your stuff. That's super, super to hear. Thank you. Okay, so this is the fun question of the day. We like to imagine that we'll be going off to the cosmos with our favorite versions of chocolate. So Deanna, which three chocolates would you take with you? This is hard because I really like chocolate. So this was hard to narrow down to just three. I probably had 27 I could have listed. I did narrow it down. I would take a bar or an endless year's supply of Zococo's Chale milk. It's incredible. It's smooth. So Michelle from Zococo makes this in Australia, just outside of Sydney. She gets her beans from Chale, which is a region of the Solomon Islands. So probably it's close to my heart, but it's just delicious. It was the first time as an adult that I ate milk chocolate and thought, this is delicious. It's not too sweet. It's, it is creamy and wonderful. And I could keep going. I could eat that whole bar. <laughs> so I'd take that one. I'd take Zococo's Chale milk. I would also take just about anything Jinduya. Maybe that's my um, Italian heritage coming through, but the hazelnut chocolate combo for me is is a good one. Hogarth makes a really good Jinduya bar, which is out of this world. And just any Jinduya bar I've ever tried has been, <laughs> been very pleasing. And do you guys make one? Is that on the product line yet? It's not yet. It's a work in progress. We have gone through phases of making little like Jinduya treats. It wasn't in our form. We've had little treats that we could you could buy at our shop. We've thought about like a paste, just a spreadable kind of thing. We haven't mastered anything quite yet, but anytime we play around with it, I am 100% showing up to be the tester. <laughs> of course, of course. Okay, I've, I've distracted you. Sorry, you're number three. <laughs> Oh, no, that's okay. My number three, I think you had mentioned at one point, it could just be an origin. And so, yeah, I would choose Bolivia's Alto Beni beans. They're wild harvested and wild fermented. And I've never tasted a bar from those types of beans that I haven't absolutely loved. I think 
Fruition made an amazing bar with the Alto Benny Beans. And we made one a few years back, I think 2016, that won a Good Food Award. And it's by far the best bar that I I think that Dictator's ever made. It was it was just delicious, just amazing. So I'd take those. I'd take a whole pile of those. Amazing. One more. You've made it this far. We will close with what does cacao mean to you? Cacao to me is livelihood. I think that's the word that would best describe how my interaction and my concept of it for us, certainly as a family and a family business, certainly the business has become our livelihood. The family within Dick Taylor, I think that we've created some livelihood within that and for employees looking for just more than a work atmosphere, but definitely goes beyond our own community and our our industry. And that is certainly wanting to connect with the livelihood of the folks on the other end, all the farmers and their communities, and hoping that we can be some small or big piece of increasing their livelihood. And just as the partnership continues to grow, hoping that like cacao is the livelihood for everybody on the supply chain that that we're working with. Just hoping that it's it's a life-giving, wonderful, like joy-sparking type of thing from here down to wherever it goes. I can't think of a better answer from someone who dedicates their life to bringing lives to the world. So thank you for your words of wisdom and for taking the time to share about the company's history and your involvement and deep-rooted connection to its origins. Thank you so much, Lauren. I feel really humbled that you would have me, you know, not being the owner or the CEO or whatever, but you know, I, I feel really honored to be a part of this panel, a powerhouse of all these women in chocolate and yourself included. So just really thank you. Thank you for being well-tempered, Deanna. And I thank you all for listening. I was told from a recent festival gathering that you could look around the room and see guests from well-tempered, or that there were people there that were meeting for the first time that had heard one another on these shows. That is so cool to hear, and I am really tickled and honored that this little passion project has turned into a means of celebrating one another and connecting further relationships. This episode is produced and edited by me, Lauren Heinick. The opening and closing songs are by Anna Garcia. You can get in touch with me mostly on Instagram these days at Lauren on the Weekend and Weekend Chocolate using initials WKND. I'm already preparing the next episode for you all featuring a woman in chocolate from a company with a lot of history and firsts. If you have any guesses, feel free to let me know. Until then, stay well-tempered. One morning when I was a child, my mom asked me with a smile, what you will be when you get older The only thing I have clear is just to make this place A bit warmer And she looked at me and with her voice as she answered